Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast today on the pod. With some Vancouver views, be blocked by future housing. Council Peter Meisner joins us. The city hall looks to get rid of obsolete Yukons. Plus, will getting rid of development cost charges actually lead to significant tax hikes in the future for Metro Vancouver residents? And remember when the Stanley Park train actually worked? We'll get the latest on the train to nowhere. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. It's Wednesday, October 4th. Welcome to the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thanks for dropping by on this busy Wednesday afternoon. Keep it locked here for news and, and traffic. We've got a lot to talk about today. Let's begin with our top story and discuss cell phone prices. Now, you may recall, uh, before lifting the final barrier to Rogers' uh, takeover of Shaw Communications this past March, Industry Minister uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne said that the message he had heard from Canadians was loud and clear, that Canadians have said that they pay way too much for telecom services and they want more options. Full stop. Now, Mr. Champagne's solution uh, was a, f- a real fourth player, as he called it at the time, to go toe-to-toe with the giants like Rogers and and, um, and Telus and Bell. That fourth company would be Quebecor, which acquired Shaw's Freedom Mobile. Now, it's currently the fourth largest carrier in Canada um, when the purchase was made for $2.8 billion. Now, part of that deal, Freedom was required to offer a wireless plans at a 20 percent discount compared with prices offered by the major wireless carriers. Now, if you go to your local shopping mall, you're seeing ads in the paper, perhaps even listening to them here at the CKNW, you see deals now about $45 per month where you can get um, calling between U.S. and Canada, uh, wireless plans and data plans are like 30 gigabytes a month, 50 gigabytes per month. So you're seeing some movement. Now, it's early to say whether or not it'll have a significant impact, but a new study confirms once again Canada still has some of the most expensive cell data plans in the world. Uh, In some cases, Canadian mobile data plans cost 200 times more than the cheapest ones in other countries. Canada was ranked the 22nd most expensive country in the world um, and averages averages a cost of $7.32 per gigabyte. That's 268 times more expensive than Israel. uh, That country has the lowest data plans where cell data costs two cents per gigabyte compared to Canada's $7.32. Well, joining me now to discuss the issue of cell phone plans and why we still pay too much for cell phone costs is David Soberman. He's a professor of marketing at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management. Uh, Mr. Soberman, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, this is a constant conversation, of course, in Canada in regards to our, our cell phone rates. Now, recently, uh, we've, um, uh, in the last year or so, learned that uh, Quebecor would be purchasing uh, uh, Freedom, uh, which many hope would spur greater competition. I'm seeing a little bit more anecdotally out, out in the retail space of you know, plans that seem to be offering more, costing a little bit um, less. Do you think that it'll have much of an impact uh, in regards to the overall pricing situation in Canada? Probably not, but on the other hand, there is a downward trend over time. I guess the real concern that a lot of Canadians have is that the gap between what we pay and what they pay in many other countries is quite large. Mm -hmm. Uh, How do we change that? Well, um, I think that obviously one of the things that uh, the arguments that were brought to bear in trying to get approval for the Shaw merger was that it would increase competition. But frankly, I don't really think uh, the 
merger did a lot in terms of increasing competition. We still have a country which is dominated by three very large telecommunications companies. And even though they ostensibly compete, they don't compete nearly fiercely enough to give us prices that are globally competitive. So I think really the only way to increase the level of competition is to allow new entrants and in particular foreign competitors to allow them to come into our marketplace and offer mobile phone service. Uh, do other nations allow for foreign ownership? Absolutely, and I think that's one of the reasons that there is such uh, low mobile service. Um, a place like France has competitors from Germany and from Britain that are also providing service. And in many countries, there are multiple competitors. Many of them are foreign-owned. And I think that's precisely one of the things that has impeded us getting competitive mobile phone rates in our country. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I look at my own phone bill. And I, I pay $60 a month. I was getting about 30 gigabytes of data, which is not bad. It's a corporate plan here through work. Uh, but because even just what's occurring now with Freedom Mobile, I've now been able to get the same plan with a little bit with more gigabytes, but more importantly, I can use it in Canada or the U.S. or vice versa, and that includes data. I viewed it as a win, and that's what, what sort of spurred this conversation be, be, between us today. But, you know, if I was in, in, let's say, France and some of these other countries, what kind of prices would be, you know, broadly speaking, be, be paying for, for cell phone use? Well, I can tell you because I've spent time in France as recently as last month. And for a month of service with unlimited calling and unlimited data, I'm paying 16 euros a month. So you convert that to Canadian dollars, and you're looking less than $25 a month for unlimited calling and unlimited data. So that gives you an idea of, of, of the gap. No doubt. And I thought I had a deal, so there you go. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm wondering, in this case, so what's, what's holding us back? Is it a, is it a case of... The major telecoms just having um, that much uh, influence in the corridors of power? Is it a worry that, that our major Canadian telecoms would be, we would lose control of, or at least Canadian ownership of these, um, of these companies? What's, what's holding the federal government back who keeps talking about wanting to have a fourth national provider that can drive competition? Well, it's a combination of factors, and I think the two things that you mentioned are are in, are at play. So the telecommunications companies do have a lot of influence, and and not only that, there's always been a fear in Canada of foreigners taking over our economy, and that goes back decades. But I think most importantly is our telecommunications companies are not only the major broadcasters; they are also the major companies that provide mobile phone service, and. Rightly so, I think we've had cultural uh, objectives in terms of allowing outlets for Canadian artists to be able to uh, produce material and to have it distributed to Canadians. And for that reason, we tended to protect our broadcasters. But because the broadcasters own the mobile phone networks, somehow those things have gotten blurred. And I think that when it comes to broadcasting and providing an outlet for Canadian artists and Canadian content, that's very important, and Canadian ownership is important. But when it comes to something which is as commodity-like as 
mobile phone service and the ability to use the World Wide Web over your phone, that's the sort of thing where I think the cultural dimension or the cultural argument is a lot weaker. Mm-hmm. Do you see, see this changing anytime soon? I mean, it, it, you know, we all have complaining about our telecom companies. We're always complaining about the prices of our cell phones and what we pay for our cell phone prices here. Um, is this going to change anytime soon? Well, I think there's a couple of things. First of all, the type of report that we're discussing now is the sort of thing that really infuriates Uh, Canadians. So the more reports that we get showing what a bad deal we're getting, I think that helps to sort of get Canadians activated about getting something done. And I think the only way that something will happen is if there's pressure put on the people that are running our country. And so we're going to have to sort of, if this becomes an important political issue and we elect people that make a commitment to allowing foreign firms to come into our mobile phone market, that is the sort of thing that will create positive changes. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time there. I really appreciate it. I know it's a, it's an ongoing issue, uh, but uh, it's an important one, and, and hopefully one day we can see much lower, uh, lower prices. Mr. Soberman, thank you so much for your time today. It was my pleasure, and thank you. Welcome back to the show. Well, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, uh, also known as ALS, is a nervous system disease that affects nerve cells in the brain and spinal cord. ALS causes loss of muscle control. Uh, The disease can get worse over time. Uh, Many British Columbians have had to deal with the effects of ALS, and uh, they wouldn't have been able to do so without the good help of the people at the ALS Society of British Columbia. Joining us now is Wendy Toyer, Executive Director of the organization. Talk a little bit about uh, Project Hope. Wendy, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Jazz. Uh, Let's walk through a little bit about uh, your organization first. How long has the ALS Society here um, uh, in British Columbia been around? The ALS Society of BC was formed in 1981 by Dr. Andrew Eisen, Mm -hmm. who to this day is continuing to be very active on our board and very active with Project HOPE. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk to me a little bit about uh, since that time and even today, what research has looked like? Have there been any sort of positive gains in research? Uh, what has it looked like so far over the last 20 or 30 years? Well, for the longest time, there wasn't any uh, new treatments for ALS. But since the Ice Bucket Challenge, we've now seen uh, Project Mine, which is where um, Genes are being mapped by people living with ALS to see if there's a commonality among genes. Uh, We now in British Columbia have a new treatment called Albriosa uh, that is uh, manufactured by Amalek. So that's available and covered under MSP. So we are starting to see that. But the whole philosophy with Project HOPE is research has been terribly underfunded in the past. and It's been split into so many separate pots. Mm -hmm. We're not going to see anything really result from that unless we put our money and significant money into uh, research here at UBC to get us over that so that we're, we're funding one lab as opposed to multiple labs. So when was Project HOPE launched here in this province? Uh, the decision was made in the fall of 2019 mm-hmm. and uh, the professorship at UBC, the funds were raised with the support of the province of BC. Uh, that agreement was signed in 2022, and now we've made we've now recruited Dr. Eric Pyro, who will be heading Project Hope and the professorship at UBC. 
So now we've made an additional commitment to raise $20 million to support Dr. Payaro in his work at UBC at the Centre for Brain Health. So initially for Project Hope, you raised, is it $5 million, just over $5 million to, to, to establish the endowment? Yeah, $5.3 million. And that's an important number because we actually were able to fund what's called an endowed trust. So that revenue will be in place in perpetuity. So, you know, that position, that professorship will always remain. Okay. Now, uh, as you said, uh, you've signed an MOU with UBC to raise $20 million to support Project Hope. What's the Mm -hmm. current balance at right now? Uh, Just under $3 million raised so far. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of the the proceeds from the move to Curie LS, which is an event that's held throughout BC in June, 40% of the proceeds go to Project Hope and just over, I think, $160,000 this year was raised for Project Hope that way, as well as the province continues to be supportive of our work. And we are now in discussions with the federal government to see if we can get some support from them as well for this. Is there some sort of um, commonality or at least conversation nationally? Because you know, you're, pro- you're funding this project here. There may be other projects in other provinces. Is there that discourse between different uh, research zones? Not really. Like ALS British Columbia is part of the ALS Canadian Alliance. Mm-hmm. Uh, which has other provinces. So each society is their own independent charity. So because we have the capacity at UBC to do research, there have been initial discussions with some of the other provincial societies to fund Project HOPE here. In the past in Canada, what was happening is all research money for ALS was put into one pool, and then small grants Mm. were provided, and it takes a long time to do a grant application. And of that, only 15% were being approved. So a researcher might get 100000 150000 50000 We're never going to see a cure for ALS that way. We need millions of dollars to go into research. Very similar to what we saw with the investment to identify and and to develop the vaccine for COVID. Yeah, and which makes a lot of sense. You're not going to solve anything with, a, you know, a projects with get a $50,000 to $150,000 incremental funding. You need that long-term funding in one location where you build knowledge and institutional knowledge and history as well, which hopefully gets you to a point where you can make those big discoveries that you want to see. Absolutely, and there's no better place than UBC because... Alzheimer's and Parkinson's are already doing research there. The biomedical engineering hub has just been announced there. So there's a tremendous opportunity for collaboration. And that's really what's going to be needed here to get us to where we need to go. So if you want to learn more about Project HOPE and and hopefully donate money, where can people go? They can go to projecthopealsbc.ca. Excellent. Uh, Wendy, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jazz. Welcome back to the show. Well, recently, you probably heard that the federal government abruptly postponed an announcement uh, uh, where tens of millions of dollars in housing funding was was supposed to go to two uh, Metro Vancouver municipalities. Uh, and that funding was pulled because of concern about new development fees being proposed for the region. Now, um, in this case, it was Burnaby and Surrey, to my understanding. Uh, and it, what both cities uh, when they received a letter from the federal government 
Uh, and I guess they're still walking through in regards to whether or not uh, they will receive some of that federal funding, part of the accelerator fund. Fund, But the question was really around um, development cost charges uh, that were announced many months ago uh, here in Metro Vancouver. Now, Metro Vancouver collects those fees, uh, as I said, known as development cost charges for new residential and non-residential developments in the region. Um, uh, the region itself has been moving ahead on increases to DCCs for several months due to uh, the desire by basically local politicians here to reduce the rate of property tax increases uh, projected in the years ahead for you. Uh, and there have those dollars will go to pay for a lot of um, you know major projects for the region. I think wastewater projects, those types of things, those kind of large infrastructure projects that take billions of dollars. Now, what does that mean? Well, once the overall costs are fully imp- implemented, to my understanding, um, basically to build a condo, those development cost fees would go from 11360 to 14567 for apartments and from $18,506 to $24,106 for uh, a single-family lot. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about this issue, because it is an issue, not just because of what transpired with the federal government uh, at least walking away from an announcement, but yesterday, uh, during question period, uh, BC United leader Kevin Falcon also committed to scrapping uh, the tripling of building fees, as he called it. Joining me now to talk a little bit about these development cost charges is George Harvey, who's the mayor of Delta and um, and also a chair at the Metro Vancouver Board as well. Mayor Harvey, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Sorry for the long intro, but I think it's important our audience understand these development cost charges, and if you'll do a good job of explaining them as well, but I wanted to sort of lay the groundwork for the conversation. So based on what we've heard from uh, not too long ago in regards to Burnaby and Surrey, but also what uh, Mr. Falcon announced yesterday about getting rid of these DCCs, walk me through why you think DCCs are important. Your, uh, Jazz, our region is expected to grow by over 1 million people over the next 30 years. Metro okay. Vancouver requires $11.5 billion in growth-related water and liquid waste infrastructure to ensure current and future residents of Metro Vancouver can flush their toilets, take a shower, and have drinking water. Jazz, the question is, who is going to pay for a much-needed infrastructure growth? Developers or you and I as a taxpayer? If senior governments want Metro Vancouver to provide more housing, this regional infrastructure must be built. There is a fundamental principle that growth pays for growth, and right now that is not happening. So, Existing taxpayers are being expected to subsidize for-profit developers. And in my opinion, that is wrong. Mm-hmm. And as chair, we are anticipating receiving a report from staff on the subject for board discussion at the end of this month. But again, if you ask me, Jess, mm-hmm. we need to catch up. New construction and its developers need to pay their fair share of new growth in a region not you and I and your listeners. So if, uh, let's just say, uh, you know, it, it doesn't go ahead. I'm speculating here. What would it mean for the average taxpayer here in Metro Vancouver? Substantial. That, that means that all, all the cost of new growth is going to be subsidized uh, by current taxpayers and future taxpayers that are living in other areas of the region. So it would be a very, very massive impact on our residential tax base. And, you know, those are people that live in homes for 40, 50 years, mm-hmm. and they're still paying a portion. And I think that's unfair. Uh, and I've heard that if, if, if those development cost charges were eliminated, would it be, I've heard talk of even a 52% increase in property taxes. I, I, I have I've seen some of the figures, uh, but I really want to have more data, but it's going to be substantial. But the question is, Jess, is it fair? I mean, are we supposed to, is the 
the general public and taxpayers, are they supposed to subsidize for-profit developers? And I'd say no. Mm -hmm. Now, there was obviously an announcement of the removal of GST uh, being imposed on new apartment buildings, new rentals. Uh, And developers have already said by implementing these DCCs, half of those savings for developers are lost. And I I think that may have been part of the decision by the federal government to walk away from this big high-profile announcement for Surrey and, and, and Burnaby. Um, are other regions doing this, or, or is this something new in regards to DCCs for, for, for Metro Vancouver? Uh, what we are proposing is common right across Canada. I was back in Ottawa when we heard of the, the pullback uh, off a, a tweet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was very concerned about that, and I talked directly to the minister after. And what I asked him to do was to have his staff meet with our staff in Ottawa that were there to explain our DCC program. And I think you already know Burnaby and Surrey did receive that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just curious. So, in this case, do you worry that this is going to turn into a political football? Then, uh, to me, it's a political volleyball game right now. <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, Metro Vancouver is in the middle of this because of the fact that we are applying and we will have to apply to the province for approval of DCC charges. Mm-hmm. And and so, walk me through here. Is this the discussion would be a one time discussion with the entire region, or does each community have to? Uh, uh, walk through the DCC charges through council and vote council by council? Uh, DCC charges are twofold. One is for local governments. Delta has its own DCC bylaw, which we're looking at increasing charges also. Mm-hmm. And then Metro has a separate regional charge, and that's for, of course, to separate out our large wastewater treatment plants, our drinking water, you know, our dams that provide those, the structures. All those things are regional whatever is under our regional orders. So uh, there's two times, regional taxes, Metro Vancouver taxes, and also uh, local government tax, uh, DCC charges. So you've talked about wastewater treatment plants. Just, can you walk through some of the specific projects you're working as a region to to uh, to rebuild or to, to, to start anew? What kind of projects are we talking about here that you wish to use those dollars for? Yeah, we are building a, a number of new uh, regional uh, Ionas 1, the North Shore treatment plant. Uh, but I just want to step back a bit because there was a comment with regards to Metro and a bit of a bit of criticism on our financial uh, tasks that we do. Mm-hmm. But I did, when, after I became chair, I did strike a financial plan task force, and we were able to work together with our staff, and we are deferring about $650 million of lower-risk projects beyond the five-year financial plan. And then I've just established another financial task force to look at the Iona sewage treatment plant cost projections and also the North Shore wastewater treatment plant projections. So as a board and under my, myself as chair and the vice chair, we are taking the steps to make sure that we're as fiscally prudent as possible. Hmm. Um, so in the case of developers, you couldn't do sort of half and half where some of it is property tax increases and some of it is DCC uh, to perhaps reduce some of these costs? I know that the board report will be having some options for the board members to consider, but if you just look at ourselves in Delta, uh, we do everything possible to actually make sure we're reducing costs to the development community. And I know all the other mayors are working on the same. In Delta, for example, we are just eliminating the required uh, tax that was there with regards to park acquisitions that's been there for, for decades. Uh, and that's a significant hit. In one project, a six-story building, that's over a million dollars. Now, we as mayors, and with, good, with our staff working hard to reduce our timelines, we can ensure that the increase in development cost charges will be mitigated by 
steps that we take. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think this is going to lead to less building? Because developers are saying, wait a minute here, you know, the, the GST cut is one thing, and, and yet one level of government says, hey, we're going to give you a break here so you build more rental, and all of a sudden the region comes along and brings along these DCCs, which cuts uh, the, the incentive for the, the GST removal by half already. Do you think this, is, this could potentially lead to just less building, uh, less supply for the region being built? In jazz, the infrastructure has to accommodate growth, and growth should be paying for growth. And then, again, we need as individual cities, individual mayors, uh, work with our development community to ensure that the DCCs that we're charging, and again, incentives to help them uh, start building. Uh, I've met with a developer today who uh, was very pleased with regards to the removal of the uh, parks acquisition uh, levy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they want to get building. And the best way we can help them is get those projects out quick and out of the ground as fast as possible. Yeah. Uh, Mayor Harvey, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Keep in touch. Today, a Vancouver uh, City Committee uh, is looking at a motion uh, which would review the city's protected view cones uh, and which many people have said, look, in the past have helped us preserve the city's, uh, you know, in skyline in many ways it allows us to see the physical beauty and keep our connection to nature others have said look it's it's played a role in perhaps stifling some of the building of badly needed housing uh, in the city uh, yesterday we had on brent Tadarian, who is a former vancouver city planner uh, he talked a little bit of the uh, on the role of view corridors uh, in building the city of vancouver take a listen the protective view corridors are about the connection to the mountains in particular. We have something called street-end views that protect the view down to the water. But the view corridors are about the mountains. As a backdrop, if you think about how you would frame a picture on your wall, the mountains are the backdrop, the skyline is the foreground. And there was a very strong interest in designing the downtown in a way that fits into, respects, reflects, pays some uh, homage to, our fantastic setting. It takes dozens of decisions to protect these view corridors. And in fact, dozens of decisions had been made to protect them. And only one decision to block them. If you allowed even one building to block them, then those dozens of other previous decisions don't matter because the view is blocked. There was a lot of pressure to say, if we're going to block them, we better be really sure we know what we're doing and that's what we want to do relative to the values at play in our city building, what we consider most important, etc. So do we protect all those view corridors uh, or is there room for compromise? Joining me now is uh, Peter Meisner, ABC Vancouver City Councillor. Peter, thank you for joining us. Hi, Jazz. Thanks for having me. I understand you've been meetings uh, pretty much all day today. How's it going so far? Well, it did uh, pass unanimously. Um, so wow. to Brent's, uh, yes. So we did make a few uh, changes uh, to the motion, mm-hmm. uh, just in terms of uh, reinforcing some of those wide uh, panoramic views. And just to be clear, that was never the intention of the motion. This is really about looking at some of the lower priority framed views, mm-hmm. not those big sweeping vistas like we see from Queen Elizabeth Park, for example. So it, it did pass unanimously with uh, cross-party uh, support today. So the uh, postcard view has been preserved, uh, which most people, as you said, wasn't going to be touched. What will be impacted and what view corridors uh, or rules around view corridors uh, will you make uh, less of a priority? 
Yeah, so this is really just a review. So what we're doing is we're directing staff to come back with information on all of the view cones and view corridors throughout Vancouver, but really with a focus on some of those lower priority framed views. So we have the big panoramic views like the ones from Queen Elizabeth Park, for example. Mm -hmm. That's not really what we're focused on here. What we're looking at is frame views where there's buildings, for example, that are framing a small view. And some of those views are really, really minor. Um, Some of them are obscured by trees or vegetation. Some of them have changed since 2010, which was when the last review was done by new buildings. And some of them are actually only visible from moving vehicles. So what the review is intending is uh, for staff to come back with information on all of those view cones and also how much housing, job space and hotel space, for example, could be unlocked if some of those minor ones to be relaxed. This is not getting rid of view cones. Uh, Do you think those view cones have stifled uh, supply being built in the city? I know for a fact they have. So I've been on council for just under a year now, and uh, obviously we meet with uh, proponents of, of developers building buildings downtown. Um, there's a social housing project, for example, on Richards and Drake uh, that's be under construction right now. Well, that was sliced by one third due to a view cone, one of these minor view cones. And as a result, they're losing, you know, 100 social housing units out of that tower. We've also heard of examples of other towers where they've switched from rental to strata because of the view cone that, you know, the project doesn't work financially. Um, so it is it is cutting into housing and job space opportunities downtown. And I think in the housing crisis that we're in, we have a responsibility to take a look at all of these policies. Mm-hmm. Uh, have there been other cities that have sort of said enough of these view cones, we've got to start building, uh, we're not too worried about them, just walked away from them or at least uh, diluted the previous view, view cones? Not that I'm aware of. I mean, Vancouver's pretty unique in, in the fact that we have the view cones. Uh, Council in the spring actually did relax some view cones near Camby and Broadway. Uh, that was relatively, it wasn't very controversial. Nobody probably really even knows. But uh, the rationale there is we have, you know, two rapid transit lines intersecting uh, at Camby and Broadway. We've got the Broadway line that's, um, you know, under construction right now. But the view cone there was to preserve views of City Hall from downtown as a wayfinding instrument. So I think we all agreed on council, you know, in 2023, do we really need to see a view of City Hall as a wayfinding instrument from downtown? Obviously, job space and housing <laughs> is more important at the intersection of two rapid transit lines. So, I mean, these these rules and some of these view cones are just really, really outdated in the context of 2023. Uh, do you see us ever walking away from some of these view cones? I mean, I look at a lot of world-class cities. Look, every area is different based on culture and and geography, uh, you know, we couldn't do what Hong Kong is doing. Hong Kong's got huge towers, for, and, it, and it fits uh, to what Hong Kong is. But do you think we need view cones at all when regards to building higher, higher buildings? The technology allows it. There's greater density. We want more another million people moving here over the next uh, thirty years. Uh, does it really matter in regards to view cones? Do, does, should we have these rules in the first place? I think there's a place for view cones. I think, you know, people recognize that the views of the mountains and the ocean are what makes Vancouver extremely livable and world-class and a beautiful city. So I don't anticipate that we'd ever be getting rid of view cones. But as you highlighted, I mean, we need 28,000 new homes over the next five years here in Vancouver. That's our target from the provincial government. So we have a responsibility to look at all of our policies across the city. And if there's small view cones that uh, people don't even really know about or can't see because they're grown over with trees, for example, Mm -hmm. I think we have a responsibility to look at those if they're impacting delivery of housing downtown. Peter, thanks for your time. I know you kind of probably have to get back. Appreciate uh, you making time for us uh, and updating us on the view, uh, view cone conversation. As you said, 
Everything passed unanimously today. Yes, it did. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Let's revisit one of our top stories uh, from earlier today. You may recall that the federal government abruptly postponing an announcement a few weeks ago in regards to uh, tens of millions of dollars in housing funding uh, for Burnaby in Surrey. They were concerned about development cost fees. Um, You also uh, probably heard from many people saying that they're going to be increased in a significant way uh, by 2027. Now, uh, Metro Vancouver says they're doing this because they want to take the burden off every everyday people uh, when it comes to property taxes in the region uh, and they want developers to cover some of those costs. Uh, Mayor uh, George Harvey uh, has said that, look, um, from Delta, has said that, look, uh, there's almost $11.5 billion of infrastructure spending for this region, wastewater treatment plants, sewer, all of that, and somebody has to pay for that and they are going to do that through the DCCs. Well, yesterday during a question period, BC United leader Kevin Falcon committed to scrapping Metro Vancouver's recent tripling of building fees, and he joins us now. Kevin, thank you for speaking to us today. And thanks very much for having me, Jazz. It's a really important subject. It is, and I know uh, you worked for many years uh, in the uh, in the construction housing sector, and you know the file well. So, walk me through why you think this the DCCs should be scrapped. Well, first of all, I keep trying to uh, make this government understand that when you add cost to housing. It makes housing more expensive. If you want more affordable housing, you have to make housing less expensive. The cost that they're adding would add about $24,000 to every new home built and about $14,000 to every new apartment built. That cost is not paid for by developers, just so everyone knows. Developers pass that all along, and that gets paid for the people that are buying these units. And so what we have to understand is that at a time when we've already got over 25% of the cost of every new home being built, being government fees, taxes, regulations, delays, etc. We cannot afford to be layering on more costs. And I know it's not a message that some in government like to hear, but damn it, we're not going to get the lower housing costs if we keep adding costs. Mm-hmm. And it frustrates me. I've been in the business. I understand the business. we got a bunch of people in government that frankly haven't spent five minutes in the private sector, and they don't know what they're doing. And it just frustrates me. And I said to the Premier... Don't approve the cost. I think Metro Vancouver needs to look at their own spending. Mm-hmm. We've got a, the North Shore waste treatment plant's gone from a billion dollars to a reputedly close to $5 billion in cost overruns. That in itself suggests the problem we're facing. They've got to get their own house in order before they start hitting up new home buyers again with these significant cost increases. Mm-hmm. Now, those wastewater treatment plants and, and sewage costs, all of those things, those costs aren't going to go in. Uh, what's wrong with local politicians wanting to reduce the rate of property tax increases on individual homeowners and saying, look, maybe developers should be covering those costs? What do you say to that argument? That, look, this is ultimately, well, you know, there's a greater good they're arguing that we want to reduce the rate of property tax increases for individuals. Sure. So first of all, everyone's got to do their bit, right? So yeah. that means that local government leaders have to do their bit. They have, you know, We can't just keep operating in an atmosphere where we just keep raising everyone's property taxes, 8 9 10%. We keep adding on costs. We don't do anything to look at our own administrative or bureaucratic costs. We, we all have to do our bit. Now, I, I in, in defense of the mayors, because there's a lot of good mayors and councillors up there that totally get this, and what I have said is what BC United would do as a government, we would look at fronting a lot of those costs. A lot of the big infrastructure costs when you want to build more housing, for example, the sewer, the water, the pipes, the pump stations, et cetera, 
hugely expensive. Mm-hmm. And developers, even the biggest developers, you know, struggle to come up with the kind of dollars to pay for that upfront. We confront those costs as a province. We can get that back with interest through latecomer agreements where developers come in, they build, and then they pay their share of the uh, the costs that have been, you know, upfronted by, by the provincial government. That would help alleviate the burden on, on the local uh, taxpayer base. There's lots of ways that we can do this, but we cannot just keep hammering uh, new costs onto housing and then at the same time be complaining about the cost of housing being unaffordable. Mm-hmm. Look, we've got, I think it's, it's worth saying, Jeff, after six years of this government, we've ended up with the most unaffordable housing prices in North America, third highest on the planet. And we've got the highest average rents in Canada. What they're doing is not working, and we have to do things differently. But do you think, I mean, the same accusation could have been made against the B.C. Liberal government prior to 2017 in regards to rents, in regards to costs of housing. Uh, Isn't this really a case of, you know, the federal government getting out of the the subsidizing rental being built? That generally governments, all three levels, whether it be stifling uh, uh, construction at the municipal level, perhaps even the provincial level in regards to funding some of the affordable housing and even the federal government in regards to rental housing, that we have been collectively as a society, all levels of government, sleepwalking to this housing crisis. And whether it's BC Liberals, BC United or the NDP locally here, that it's going to take probably a generation to move towards the right direction in regards to righting this generational wrong. Well, first of all, you know, just so you know, when I was in the private sector, we were selling homes when the NDP got elected mm-hmm. in Surrey in the Fleetwood neighborhood for $450,000. These would be two-bedroom, two-bathroom, double-car garage townhomes. Um, we were selling um, high-rise condos in Surrey, studios for two, starting at $249,000, one bedrooms at $299,000. Like, that is actually pretty affordable. And the, the problem is now, after six years of a government that didn't focus at all on supply and spent all their time blaming, you know, at first it was foreign Chinese buyers, and then they said it was developers, and then they added a whole bunch of taxes onto housing, saying that's how they were going to make housing more affordable. The bottom line is they didn't do what they should have been doing, which is, first of all, working with the federal government to make sure they're playing a role for sure, especially helping fund the infrastructure we're going to need, the schools, the hospitals, the roads, the pipe and sewer infrastructure, etc. But then also making sure we're getting supply into the market. Only now are they talking about trying to deal with that. Well, they're they're in the seventh year of their government. It's awfully late to suddenly be coming to the table and saying, gee, maybe we should do something about housing supply. So I do have to tell you, yes, there's lots of blame to go around. But, you know, housing was never a huge, like when I left in 2012, 2013, housing was very affordable in British Columbia. It's become very unaffordable because we've had a province not dealing with supply. We've got a federal government that's sending a couple of hundred thousand immigrants into British Columbia every year without any you know, frankly, without any plan mm-hmm. coordinating with the provincial government to deal with those impacts. And I think that's the problem we now find ourselves in. Now, Metro Vancouver Board Chair uh, George Harvey, also the mayor of Delta, was on this program uh, uh, defending DCCs at 4 o'clock. I want you to just listen to some of his comments here. Take a listen. Jazz, our region is expected to grow by over 1 million people over the next 30 years. Metro mm-hmm. Vancouver requires $11.5 billion in growth-related water and liquid waste infrastructure to ensure current and future residents of Metro Vancouver can flush their toilets, take a shower, and have drinking water. Jazz, the question is, who is going to pay for a much-needed infrastructure growth? Developers or you and I as a taxpayer? If senior governments want Metro Vancouver to provide more housing, this regional infrastructure must be built. 
there is a fundamental principle that growth pays for growth, and right now that is not happening. Taxpayers are being expected to subsidize for-profit developers. And in my opinion, that is wrong. So, uh, Mr. Falcon, in regards to what George Harvey said there, you're just basically saying this infrastructure spend, the $11.5 billion, that senior levels of government, whether it be provincial or federal, can can carry those costs or in some sort of fund some of it, and then you can extract it from developers as as you need moving forward rather than hitting them right up front all the time. That's right. And And the other thing I would say, because George is right, yes, of course, there has to be infrastructure built for sure. I just don't have the confidence that Metro Vancouver is doing it in a way that is serving the taxpayers well. Um, you know, again, I point back to the uh, the North Shore water, wastewater treatment plant that they were building. Mm-hmm. Uh, all kinds of change orders brought in midway, lots of changes being made, lots of interference. Now you've got the contractor suing, uh, you know, uh, Metro Vancouver. You've got costs that have reputedly gone from, you know, a billion dollars to almost $5 billion dollars. Um, that is going to be a massive impact on taxpayers. And I'm just really, really very concerned that when we talk about housing affordability, all of us have to look in the mirror. Federal government, provincial government, local government, regional government. Mm -hmm. And, you know, frankly, when the federal government said finally, finally did something that might actually help, they said we'll take GST off of rental accommodation being built, rental housing. Mm -hmm. That was actually the first positive step I've seen that actually will actually make a material benefit. But then in the same breath, the next day, you've got the regional government, Metro Van, coming out and saying, we're going to add these huge costs onto housing, which is going to be about 24000 for you know every new home and 14000 for every new apartment. And just again, I want to say this, Chad, do you kid yourself that developers pay for it? Developers collect that, they're going to pay for it, and they pass it all along through to the buyers. <laughs> you know, everyone needs to understand this. Developers are going to take whatever costs you layer on them and pass them along, mm-hmm. and and that's all going to be paid for by the end users. So we all have to do our bit. And I mean, there's there's certain truth there. I mean, some of these big projects, whether it's a billion or five billion dollars for for the water treatment plant there in, in on the North Shore, or others that will be needed with another million people moving here, you almost think some of these deep infrastructure projects should be treated like a sky train being built, which is if you expect the feds to come in and put some dollars, the provincial government puts in some dollars, and maybe a third of it is covered by local taxpayers. There is something to be said for these giant infrastructure projects that are that are at least shared. The costs are shared among three levels of government. One level of government, particularly in the municipal side or even the regional side, saying that they're going to do it through DCC seems, you know, kind of absurd in the sense that that's a lot to take on for the region. There's no question. And I also think how we procure those projects. I mean, we just have to get competent people overseeing large-scale projects like that. We cannot have a situation where projects are, are going over budget by four or 500%. It's just, you know, that is atrocious. Now, we've gotten used to that, unfortunately, with this provincial government, because every virtually every capital project they're involved with is wildly over budget or delayed. And it, but it's frustrating, and the public needs to understand, this is their tax dollars. And there's only one taxpayer. And the taxpayers getting tired of paying it through the nose to the federal government, the provincial government, regional government, local government. We all have to do our bit to lower costs for families. This is something that, frankly, I think all politicians deserve a kick in the rear, you know, because we're not doing enough to help provide relief for families. Yeah, I, I was just joking with a friend as an aside in regards to just large infrastructure pro- projects, especially public infrastructure projects, whether it's Site C, which I think could be... By the time it's done, I'm going to assume it's going to be $25 billion, uh, significantly more than what was expected. The water treatment plant you're talking about as well. Like, I, I, I can't remember the last time 
we've had a good firing, Kevin. You know what I mean in regards to the, whoever true. runs these projects. No one gets fired. Like someone says, we're we've it's a hundred percent, two hundred percent over over what was budgeted. No one gets fired. That's what I, in the old days they used to get fired. People used to be held accountable. I oversaw $14 billion of infrastructure, including the Canada Line, which, by the way, was open ahead of schedule and on budget, the Portman Bridge, Sea to Sky Highway, um, all kinds of projects, Pitt River Bridge. These were all projects that, for the most part, were on schedule, on budget. We've now got a situation where virtually every single project, they even do stupid things like cancel a Massey Bridge with $100 million already invested in the NDP, canceled that project, 10-lane bridge that would have been open two summers ago. And now we, we, we're paying the price, and they're going to do this stupid tunnel idea that will cost billions more and take years later. We, we just have to stop this kind of madness. At some point, I really believe that the taxpayers are going to look around and say, we are not being served well. We've got to get people in the government that know what they're doing. Yeah. I'm just, you know, you can sense my frustration. I, as a business person, I just see this stuff happening, and it just drives me nuts. Kevin, thanks for your time today. really appreciate it. No problem, Jazz. Great to be on. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.